If you hang around Governor Mike Parson enough, you'll know pretty quickly that he cares a lot about economic development and workforce development. And State Representative Derek Greyer is in charge of turning that rhetoric into policy reality. The Chesterfield Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about what happened in the 2019 session on the economic development front and what still needs to be done in 2020. Let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today, a first-time guest and also a, a resident and a representative of beautiful and historic Chesterfield, Missouri, Derek Greyer. Thank you so much, Representative, for for coming on our show. Before we start talking a lot about economic development policy, because you are the chairman of the House Economic Development uh, Committee, tell us uh, the boundaries of your district, which cities it encompasses, and also what number it is. I, I know what it is, but the listeners may have no idea. Sure. So district number is 100, and the district covers half of Chesterfield, the southern half of Chesterfield, the northern half of Baldwin, uh, a little tiny bit of town and country, and all of Winchester. Winchester. Not Manchester. That's right. Winchester. Winchester population. I'm going to get it wrong here, but it's under 1,000. We'll just we'll just put it at that. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you come from a local government background, like a lot of people in the Missouri legislature, but I'm sure you were doing other things before you decided to run for any type of office. So this is your opportunity to tell our tens and tens of listeners who you are. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So my family actually moved here from Maryland in 1986. uh, And my family came here uh, and my folks left good paying jobs, came to Missouri to start their own business and to put my brother and I uh, through a school that they had heard about that had really good character education. But they started, you know, from nothing and built this business uh, from the ground up. And as a kid growing up around that, it was really interesting to see firsthand how that's done, right? And understand about entrepreneurship and the challenges that you go through. Uh, And really, I I kind of come from a, a a family of innovators and entrepreneurs. My grandfather was an immigrant from Poland in the early 1900s. Which part of Poland? And no idea. Because <laughs> my great-grandparents came from Grudno, Poland. Really? And they moved to Ponca City, Oklahoma. And it's a good thing they got out of Poland for obvious reasons, not only because they were Jewish and they likely would have died, but because sure. Russia took the city over and it is still part of Belarus. So Interesting. It, it, the thing that I've no, known, known about Russia is once they take over a city, they never give it back. <laughs> sorry, right. sorry to get a, a bit of a downer, but continue. No, no. no. Uh, so he came uh, with his family in the early 1900s, and uh, his father passed on when he was young, so he kind of had to provide for him and his siblings. He had a number of them. 
And he worked his way up, built a business uh, in Hollywood, on Hollywood Boulevard, was uh, the president of the Chamber of Commerce. And the story goes that he helped to start the Walk of Fame there to promote the area, which would help his business. And then he helped save the Hollywood sign. It used to be Hollywood land. The land fell down, and he convinced, they were going to tear the whole sign down, and he convinced them to keep the sign up for to become an iconic symbol, wow. which clearly happened. I'm always glad I asked people about their backgrounds, because you hear really interesting stuff like this that you never would have guessed. So I, that's... That's incredible. Yeah, really, really, really neat kind of family history. But in any case, you know that that uh, that's kind of the family background. But my my interest in politics, I have I had no intention of ever getting involved in politics. My interest has always been in business. Um, but I do have this desire to serve and give back to my community. And so after college, after working for a few years, I was back in St. Louis uh, working for the family business. And I really was looking for ways to to give back and in some ways serve my community. And I was looking to get on one of the the committees in Chesterfield, the Planning and Zoning Committee. I figured that'd be a good place for me. I had some real estate background, some experience I could lend there. And the feedback that I got from folks that I talked to about it was, you know what, Derek, you you don't really have the experience that, that you need for that. You're not old enough. And that really didn't sit well with me. So in the room where I was getting that advice, I looked up on the walls, and there's the pictures of the city council members from years past. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll run for city council, and I'll be their boss, and I'll learn a whole lot more and be able to contribute in a more impactful way. And so I did. I ran. I lost the first time, but then I was encouraged to run again. And so two years later, I ran again and won and had the opportunity to serve on the Chesterfield City Council for four years. You had to probably be one of the youngest members, I would assume. I was the youngest member ever elected to the city council. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. It was crazy, but it was a great experience. I met my wife through the experience. Hmm. Uh, she saved my life the night before uh, the campaign. She went out with me and helped put up yard signs till 3, 4 in the morning. Uh, she could see the desperation in my eyes, so I knew she was a good woman to help someone in need like that. And uh, the rest is history. You you served on Chesterfield City Council, um, and the, the seat that you represent now became open because Sue Allen ended up terming out. You ran against her husband, Michael Allen. I think probably people assume that he was the favorite in that race just because, you know, she had served for eight years and he may have had some residual name recognition, but you won pretty solidly in that contest. About 20 points. 20 points. Yeah. What do you, what went into to winning that? Was it just you had your own name recognition from serving on the city council? You just worked hard enough? You had magical hologram flyers that <laughs> enticed everybody? Gosh, well, I, I don't think it was name recognition because, you know, who knows who their city council members are. Very few people really knew who I was as a council member. Uh, it really was just hard work. And, and I just, I felt like I represented some ideas that, that weren't in the, the legislature. Uh, I had some things to contribute that wouldn't be represented otherwise. And, you know, I didn't have, again, when I stepped down from the city council, I did not have any intentions of running for higher office. I was going to focus on family and business. Um, But I was encouraged by people that knew me. And, you know, having a heart of wanting to to serve and give back, you want to have an impact for good in some way. And there are very few places where you can have as large of an impact on as many people as in politics. And so I saw it as an opportunity to bring that to the table. And so I just worked really hard. I talked to a lot of people uh, and went around. I think I had a a message that resonated with folks. and, And the timing was good. It was good. So flash forward to uh, 2019. Um, I, don't, I don't think you were supposed to be the House Economic Development Committee chairman. I think Gene Evans was initially 
name for that. She's a former state representative who's now the executive director of the Missouri Republican Party. But she resigned and to take that job. And the speaker appointed you as the economic development chair, which I think is actually a very important appointment, because if you listen to our governor, he says the word economic development every 10 seconds, and it's a major element of his agenda. So I'm going to start off with a relatively simple question. What does economic development mean to you? Because we hear it as a buzzword, but I think that there are tangible things that the state government does to actually spur and help along economic development. I want you to explain what your philosophy is and how you define economic development. I really appreciate that question because you're right. We do use that phrase all the time. And most people may not have much of an understanding of what economic development really means. And, and as a government entity, when we say that, what do we actually mean? And there are a lot of things that go into economic development. There's not one or two things. It's a number of different factors that affect economic development. And typically what we're talking about is the production of a state or uh, the, the business, the job growth, the community uh, around that uh, and and the measurements typically are, you know, your GDP, your jobs numbers. Uh, those things are driving the economy, right, the monetary economy. But there's a lot of other factors that aren't talked about a lot um, that go into play when you're talking about what drives an economy. You could have uh, all the incentive packages, you know, in the world, but if you have a dumpy city with high crime and poor infrastructure and no cultural, you know, appeal, then very few CEOs are going to want to locate their company to that city. They're, they're just not going to want to bring their employees to that type of environment. So you have to have kind of a number of other factors that go into it. There's social, cultural aspects. But typically, from the government aspect, you know, I believe that it is not government's job to create jobs. It is our responsibility to create an environment that encourages economic activity, that encourages innovation. So to the degree that we can have policies that encourage and promote that in our state and in our region. That's what we're looking to accomplish. So, you know, in what ways can we can we uh, help these companies that are being innovative, that are entrepreneurial, uh, the companies that may be already here that are looking to grow? How can we retain those jobs and those businesses? Anything that we can do in that regard. And so for me, it boils down to, you know, we have very few tools as a government that we can use to incentivize certain activity. And when you're talking about like tax credits is a subject that uh, I know we'll probably get into here. It's one of the few tools that we have as a government. And the reason you have tax credits is to incentivize certain behaviors, right? And so along with that, you know, you have a number of other things that, that kind of come into play. I, I think that a lot of Republicans like yourself talk about limited government and trying to stay out of the way of business. But I think the reality is that every state has to use some sort of incentives to either lure companies here or make them expand because lots of other states, Republican and Democrat states, are, are doing things like that. And to unilaterally disarm and not use incentives would be kind of foolish in a way. But I do want to ask, like, is there some friction, not only within yourself as a Republican, but within your caucus about whether incentives are the best way to bring businesses rather than, you know, m maybe more global policies like cutting taxes or, or removing taxes altogether? Or is, it, or is it sort of a combination of both? 
Well, I think it's more a combination. And there's there's a lot of robust conversation and dialogue that goes along within the caucus. But I think from a bipartisan standpoint, too, looking at what tools you have are most effective. And one of the things that I and again, we're, we may be getting ahead of ourselves here, but, you know, looking forward to the next couple of years, I think what we need to do is take a comprehensive approach to the incentives that we are providing as a state and look at which ones are having the most impact and being the most effective. And the ones that are not doing what they were intended to do, that are not having the right impact, we need to dial those back. And maybe there's some other ones that are doing exactly what we hope to do, and we can dial those up. Right. So we have to be really, really smart about the tools that we have because there aren't many of them and make sure that they're being used most effectively. So this past session, I would argue that the most notable pieces of legislation were were geared around workforce development and economic development. Some of them I think that you sponsored or they had to have gone through your committee at least. And then they were kind of packaged into a Senate bill that ended up passing after a very, very long filibuster. Before we talk about the dynamics of that, I want you to go over some of the things that you see as major accomplishments this session as far as economic development and some of the the new tools that the state may have to not only spur economic development, but also you know, make sure the workforce is developed. As That's the other thing the governor says every 10 seconds is, economic development, workforce development, infrastructure. Sure. sure. One of the, the most impactful things, I think, for our state is going to be the restructuring of the Economic Development Department. Uh, we, we have had, in the past, one of, if not the largest economic development departments in the Midwest, certainly, and in the country. We are very heavy on what we put into that economic development department. And a lot of the things that they have historically done don't necessarily really drive economic development. They're not really focused on true economic development. So the restructure this past year that was in part with executive order and part of it was kind of enabling legislation was to offload some of those responsibilities that the department has been responsible for. Uh, Arts Council is a great example. That's being offloaded and taken over by the lieutenant governor's office. Um, That's a great move, great shift. We have refocused the Missouri Works Program, and that's one of the pieces of legislation that I had this year. And explain what the Missouri Works Program is and what what it turned into. Sure. So it's our workforce training program, right? Or one component of it is the workforce training. And we have three separate, uh, really, workforce training programs. And the one start uh, will combine them all. And it's going to give more flexibility to our department to be able to help the companies that are either here looking to train up employees and retool them, reskill them, or companies that are looking to bring new jobs to Missouri, new companies relocating to Missouri, that sort of thing. Um, so it really is, is it's providing the department the ability to be laser-focused and give us the ability to really hone in our competitive advantages, to promote those competitive advantages, and to drive additional uh, job growth, job stimulation, uh, job retention, attraction, that sort of thing. I think there was also part of the, I think it's Senate Bill 68, which I was talking about, a scholarship program for adults to train uh, or get trained for a specific workforce-related thing. Could you 
explain that? Because I again, I assume that went through your committee, and you may have sponsored that as standalone pieces of legislation as well. Yeah, it was actually a, a piece of legislation that went through our workforce development committee, mm-hmm. and uh, that was uh, the fast track legislation, so called fast track, right? And it provides uh, funding for in- adults to go back and get education, to retrain themselves, to get into the workforce and be productive citizens here in Missouri. So it, it's a program that it did run into some controversy this year. There were some that felt like it was a, a just kind of a giveaway that was unnecessary. Um, I think you have to look at some of these programs and, and see what their impact is going to be and, and perhaps reevaluate. So I think it's a good opportunity for us to, to put this into place and see how it works, see if we're able to, to train up new people in, and get them employed. Because one thing, as, as a lot of people will tell you, I, the, the businesses that I talk to, the individuals that are running these corporations, they have lots of jobs. It's just we don't have the skilled workers. So that's what your workforce development and workforce training, when we say that, is getting people the tools and the skills to be able to fill those jobs that we already have here in Missouri. If there was one aspect of SB 68 that I think caused the most consternation among opponents, it was this closing fund, which opponents called derisively a slush fund. But Proponents of it have pointed to other states as this is kind of ways to really close very large economic development deals that could bring lots of jobs to the state of Missouri. Explain how would that would work and why you think it was important to be part of the overall economic development workforce package. There was a lot of controversy about that piece. But if you look at what other states are doing, uh, again, to, to use your term, what did, how did you phrase it? You, you can't... Uh, uh, well, I, we'll have to go back and listen to the clip, but I liked what you said. You can't just unilaterally disarm. That's unilaterally you disarm. Yes. And, and we the, don't have to listen to it, but <laughs> you, 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 you saved yourself there. But continue. The, you know, the, and that's a, that's a good way to put it because in a hypothetical bubble you know, where you had no incentives that anybody was offering, you had a purely competitive environment, then that argument holds water that we need to just get rid of all incentives. Right? But the reality is, is that we, we are in a competitive environment, an aggressively competitive environment with other states, with other countries for this business. And so we have to be competitive. And other states that have implemented these closing funds seem to have had some success with it. So for me, I'm willing to give it a shot and see whether it it works or whether it doesn't. I think we need to continue to reevaluate. Just like any government program, we need to reevaluate these things and see whether they're working. Before we get to the back and forth behind uh, this, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the thing that I think was most high profile this package, and that's sort of incentives for Wentzville plant uh, Wentzville GM plant to expand. How Explain how that came to be. I don't know if it actually went through the committee process because it kind of came up pretty late in session. And, I, and if I'm not mistaken, it may have just been expanding things that are already in place or maybe not. That's why I'm asking you about that. But explain how that came about and if there's been any update about uh, the Wentzville plant expansion and, and GM's willingness to invest more money if you have any secret information, I'd be I'd be happy to hear about that on the show. Obviously, <laughs> definitely don't have any secret information. But that com- that piece of it is is really the the purpose behind it is to uh, encourage large investment in our state. You know, we're talking about massive, massive investment, direct capital into our state. You know, half a million, half a billion to a billion dollars worth of of capital investment. And it's the state uh, basically saying, if you're going to drop that kind of capital into our state, 
we're going to recognize that as a contribution here and that you know you are contributing to our economy in a significant way and in order to incentivize again it's to encourage that type of investment in our state we are going to defer withholding tax in this uh, particular instance right so if you are bringing a certain amount of money and it is determined by you know the metrics there there's specific measurement uh, performance metrics and measurements that you have to meet in order to obtain those those incentives and so the idea is to ensure that like in this case GM uh, they're considering a massive, massive investment in our state. I don't think there's any district in the entire state, any house district, that does not have a GM employee in it, right? So this this impacts our entire state, uh, the totality of it. And so the idea was, okay, let's let's make sure that happens. Let's make sure they don't take that investment and that another state that has a GM plant in it uh, comes in with something else that is going to, to, to take that investment away from Missouri. As I kind of alluded to, even though this was a part of a Republican governor's agenda to pass through a Republican legislature, and it did pass, and the governor did sign it last week, not everybody in your caucus was super happy about elements of this. I would not say that, like, when this went through the Senate, like, Republican senators were mad at every item. They, they clearly liked some and didn't. And you had senators like Andrew Koenig of Manchester uh, give this reason why he helped participate in a filibuster in the last week of session. One, because it had there's a lot of corporate welfare in there, and literally million, not almost nine. The fiscal note says ninety million dollars, and I believe that's bad policy for government to pick winners and losers in the marketplace, and especially picking certain businesses. I think the best way to promote economic growth in the state is lowering the tax for every business, um, instead of micromanaging the economy. So you heard that type of argument not only from Senator Koenig, but also from Senators Onder, Eigel, Hoskins, uh, members of the quote-unquote conservative caucus. When you heard that type of argument, because I think that, argu- that that was percolating through the House during debate over this legislation, what was your response? What would you tell people that in your party that are skeptical about these sort of things, why they may be mistaken? Well, first of all, they're not wrong. They're not wrong about their arguments and the way they're looking at it. Um, and I, I, full disclosure, am a member of the conservative caucus in the House, right? I may not be after this interview. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but I, you know, what I tell people is that, you know, that, that is – that is the correct approach if you're if you're working in a hypothetical bubble, right? If you're if you're go back to economics class in you know in college, you're dealing with hypothetical situations where you can control all the variables. Well, we don't live in that type of situation. We live in a a hyper competitive environment where there all are these other incentives being offered. So unless we're willing to to get left behind in Missouri and have these corporations not looking to us to make their investments and bring their employees here, I think we have to consider them. So I'm often torn with these incentive packages. I think we have to measure them very specifically. I think that we have to ensure that they are doing exactly what uh, we intend them to do. And if they are not, we need to get rid of them. And there are a number of programs that are not as efficient and effective as they should be or they were intended to be. And we need to look at getting rid of them. One of the notable things about how Governor Parson handled this filibuster, because our listeners probably know this, but if you have like five or six people filibustering a bill, that's pretty potent. And they have a lot of leverage to influence the direction of legislation, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Well, Governor Parson basically 
didn't yell or scream or call these people names. I think he negotiated and talked with all of them. And I don't think he ended up having to give up anything or changing anything in Senate Bill 68. He pretty much got everything that he wanted. And he he kind of laid out this philosophical approach when talking to reporters before it ended up passing the Senate. A lot of hard work has been put into trying to figure out what does that workforce development piece look that's fair for all Missourians? Not one specific town, not one specific company. It's all about that. And that's what we've done from day one with this. We've met with both sides of the aisle. We've met with the caucuses in both the House and the Senate, with leaderships in both the House and the Senate from day one talking about these very issues that we're talking about today. And I think they are priorities to the people of this state. So how would you rate the governor's handling of this? Because a lot of people that have known him for a while saw this type of conflict and they pointed to the fact that he used to be a member of the House and the member of the Senate as a way to wade through potentially explosive legislative impasse and end up getting a lot of what he and a lot of his Republican allies wanted. Well, I think he handled it expertly for, for, to accomplish what he was looking to accomplish, right? I mean, it, he and he has a, the governor, I have found him to have a very collaborative mindset, right? He, he wants to work together with people. He wants to find common ground and start from that common ground to work to a solution that's going to make sense, like he said in that clip, for all Missourians and to benefit all Missourians. I, I truly believe that, that he has a desire to do that. And I think the way that he handled this probably, I mean, if you look at what was accomplished in the end, was a, a big home run for him. I mean, it was it was a major accomplishment to to get this across the finish line. And there were a number of moments there where it was touch and go, where the whole thing could have gone down in smoke. But it probably did have a lot to do with his handling of it and his his uh, you know level head that that he was able to to work with the different groups and and get something across the finish line. Now, whether everybody is is completely happy with what that final product is? Probably not. But usually the legislation that's best is the one that not everybody is, you know, that there's not one group that's really, really excited about and another group is really upset about. It's usually the, the piece of legislation where people say, you know what, we got some things that we wanted and we didn't get everything we wanted and maybe there's some stuff we don't like in it. But on the whole, there's some good, good things that we can point to. We'll be back after this break with Representative Derek Cryer. And we're back with Representative Derek Greyer. I want to peer into 2020 because I don't think that uh, the economic development agenda is over yet. I want to start off open-ended before we talk about a more controversial topic in low-income housing tax credits. As the chairman of the Economic Development Committee, what are some priorities you want to see legislators focus on next year? It's an election year. Oftentimes, like, election year things get in the way of more nuts and bolts things like this. But I'd be interested to hear kind of what you're looking for in the future when you're talking about policymaking in the economic development space. Yeah, really three things that I want to focus on. The The first one is looking at our incentive programs in the state comprehensively because it is one of the few tools that we have. And as the Economic Development Committee, typically the bills that come through there are incentive type programs. I want to take a more comprehensive approach to that and look at them as a whole and say, okay, we have half a billion dollars of tax incentives that we provide every year. Which programs are working and having the bottom line impact and effect that we want and which ones aren't? And dial the ones that aren't working down or turn them off and dial up the ones that are really having a positive impact 
And there may be some other programs that we haven't considered before that would have a positive impact that we can replace some of these other maybe outdated programs with. But this, uh, this individual piecemeal approach to incentive programs, I just don't think that works. You know, we have one program that pops up here, another program that pops up there, and you end up having a whole bunch of different programs. Like we have, I think, 40-plus you know, tax incentive programs in Missouri, uh, and it's probably too many. We probably need to get rid of some of those and, and dial some of them back uh, and find, find the ones that are really making the largest impact. Number two, uh, the regulatory environment is a big piece of what I focus on and finding ways to uh, make uh, create an environment that is more encouraging to innovation entrepreneurship. And one of those ways is in professional licensing. I've spent a lot of time in that space. Uh, two years ago, we passed the most comprehensive licensing reform that we've had in our state in over a decade. And it's not talked about a whole lot, but that is one way that we can break down barriers to entry. Uh, professional licensing regulations often get in the way of workforce uh, development and of being able to grow jobs. We have people that want to work in Missouri. We want to get them to work as, as easily and quickly as possible. And so that's one area I want to focus on. And the third area really is, you know, a big component of economic development is understanding and knowing your competitive advantages and then making sure that you are marketing those and make sure you are talking about those. And we don't do a good enough job in Missouri of talking about the bright spots in our economy and what we're doing really well. One example is agriculture technology. This week, I convened my committee uh, to listen to the innovators in the agriculture technology industry here in Missouri, because this is one area where we are positioning ourselves to be global leaders. I think we're number, I mean, St. Louis, and I've actually, believe it or not, I've actually done a lot of reporting on this subject. St. Louis is typically seen as either the first, second, or third in the uh, agriculture technology space. A lot of it, I think, may have had to do with Monsanto and now Bayer being here. But I, I think just the fact that also Washington University is here. The and Danforth, Danforth Plant Science Danforth Center. Plant Science is here. So it's it's a big deal. This it's is a huge industry. Huge. And they are doing groundbreaking work in, in things that aren't just kind of cool and neat. Like initially, my interest in this subject came from just finding out some of the technology that's there and thinking it's pretty cool. Well, it's way more than just cool. I mean, we are solving major world problems right here in our region and in our state. World hunger, we are going to have 10 billion people to feed in 2050. That's a major issue. I mean, how are we going to feed those people? How are we going to grow enough food and distribute that food to be able to, to feed 10 billion people? That's a major problem that we are working on innovative solutions right here in Missouri to figure that out. And that's, that's important for people to know. Um, geospatial technology, another air bright spot in our economy where we have a, an opportunity to be a world leader in that as well. With NGA's new headquarters going in here, there's going to be all kinds of ancillary businesses that we can now go out and promote our region and promote our state to bring them here. FinTech, financial technology, another very bright area for our economy. So we need to do more of magnifying the good and talking about the things that are really happening that are that are exciting, um, that are going to get other businesses and get our, our economy moving forward and continue to grow uh, what we're doing here. When, when you talk about economic development, do you, when you're talking with people that are in that space, do you get a sense that it's a lot more difficult to bring large businesses into rural Missouri, which, you know, is agricultural and you know, there are some places like Northeast Missouri that used to have a pretty strong industrial base or, or, or river-based economy for a long time that 
have really declined economically and are not really seeing the big opportunities you see in St. Louis and Kansas City. Are you getting the sense that that is kind of a, the rural urban suburban divide is, is a problem when it comes to economic development? Are you sensing that companies want to come anywhere and everywhere in Missouri? We need to find a way to help our rural areas in Missouri be more than just farming communities. We've got to find a way to get some of this innovation that's happening to the rural areas. And that is a concern of mine. That is something that because we are such a rural state, we've got to make sure that these communities continue to stay healthy. Because what they're seeing is, you know, they their A and B students are all leaving their their communities and going to St. Louis, Kansas City. Great for St. Louis and Kansas City, but we've got to find a way to to keep some of those folks, those good people in those towns and communities so that our rural communities are flourishing and thriving as much as our metropolitan areas are. So yes, that is something I'm absolutely looking at ways that we can do that. Um, getting broadband to those areas. Uh, it, you know, rural broadband is a, a subject that we talk about a lot. How do we make sure that the technology is in these communities so that they can utilize that and, and take advantage of, you know, uh, the, the environment, the work environment that we have where people don't necessarily have to live in the city where they're doing their job or, you know, whatever. They can work remotely. We've got to make sure they've got the technology to be able to do that. You mentioned tax incentives, and one of the incentives slash credits that was in the spotlight, uh, as it usually is, the low-income housing tax credit. Um, this is an incentive that is used by developers to cultivate uh, housing for low-income people, elderly people, veterans, disabled people. And it's been frozen since 2017. Former Governor Eric Greitens engineered a freeze as kind of a way to leverage changes in the program. Um, and even though Governor Parson is definitely on record as being opposed to that move and being a big supporter of this program, he said before the session, I'm not going to engineer a restart of the program until the legislature does something. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but because he has appointees on the Missouri Housing Development Commission, he could probably tell those appointees restart the program because the legislature did something. Much to my surprise, the legislature didn't pass anything this year. I really thought that there was going to be significant changes, whether it be lowering the cap or changing how the program worked. And we've talked about this with uh, Treasurer Fitzpatrick, who we're going to hear from in a minute. What happened on this issue? This, I think, was one of the big surprises of session, that there was no legislative endgame on this. This year, we had some really robust and very, very positive conversation and dialogue about that program. And I think we we broached some subject matter that has not, frankly, been addressed in the legislature. For over a decade, we've had studies done. We've had reports by auditors, both Republican and Democrat, task forces that have analyzed and scrutinized this program. And they put together a number of recommendations on how to make the program better and some challenges that are in the program with efficiency, with transparency. And I think that's originally why this program was turned off, right, was to address those things that had been identified and actually uh, take steps towards meaningful reform. Because frankly, for a decade, they've, they've been ignored. They've been overlooked. And it hasn't been addressed. And so now we have the opportunity to really look at some of these ideas and solutions to make the program better. And that's the goal here. The goal is not to eliminate or destroy this program. It's to make the program better. This is a program that originally at the federal level started with Ronald Reagan. 
And he implemented this as a way to take the responsibility of building low-income housing off of the government. We were in the business of building low-income housing. Well, that's not the right role for government to have. So this program was created to have a public-private partnership. It's a program that has worked well right across the country and because there's and the reason for that I should explain why that is is because there's not an economic incentive for a, a private company to build these low income housing uh, projects without some type of, of government subsidy or, or help um, there's just not there's not a there's not an economic benefit so if you're a company looking at you know what product are you going to create you're not going to create a product that is going to lose you money and that's essentially what low income housing uh, will do is if you did it without any incentives is just there's no there's no money to be made and the goal of every company is to make money you wouldn't be in business if you weren't making revenue so you have to provide some way to incentivize that so in Missouri what we have historically done is match the federal program. The federal government pumps $165 million, was the latest number, 168 I think, and some change, into Missouri. That money is utilized directly for low-income housing, and the state has matched that at 100% level. Well, my feeling about it and the conversation the way that they went this year was we need to dial that back and we need to put some fiscal controls on the dollar amount that we're spending because it is by far and large our biggest tax credit program in the state. We provide, uh, you know, it's probably three times as big as the next closest tax credit I think it's about $140 million where it's capped right now. I could be wrong about that, but I think that they dial back historics to 80 or 90. So you're you're definitely right about that, but but continue. Correct. Yes. And and in the, the country, it's one of the largest in the country. I think Georgia may be the only state that has a bigger uh, more expensive tax credit program for low-income housing. So this year, we had some really positive conversations. We talked about ways that we can create more efficiency with the tax dollars that are being spent because that's essential to getting more units built for the same amount of money. If we want more units of low-income housing in our state, which most people agree is a positive good thing, then we need to do it as efficiently as possible. The program we have today and that historically has been in place is not as efficient as it could be. So we looked at doing things like shortening the redemption period, which I love that idea. Other states have done it very effectively. Uh, We looked at uh, doing transferability. So uh, and that, that that we're getting way into the weeds on transferability, this, and it's been explained to me is mm-hmm. one of the most complicated thing that's ever been explained to me in state government. Can you give like a one sentence ex- explanation on what transferability is, Jason? That's asking a lot of me. One sentence on a hugely complicated issue like uh, this, but I'll do my best. Sure. Transferability takes the tax credit that's issued to Jason Rosenbaum, real estate developer, and instead of you only having a complicated partnership in which you can transfer or trade that uh, tax credit, you can then take that tax credit and sell it to any outside entity. It makes it much less complicated, and it allows more efficiency within the program. Um, There's less kind of people taking a cut at that tax credit, the total tax credit dollars that are there. So it's worked in other states. We have the, the statistical data to show that it works in other states. The shortening of the redemption period works in other states. So we need to stop being afraid of some of these ideas and being fearful of what um, it could do to the program and and trust that that it's going to, to be better for Missourians and, and ultimately improve 
improve the program that we've got. That wasn't exactly a sentence, but that was very concise. So I thank you for that because we could spend an entire podcast talking about transferability. So easily. Let's talk about the governor's next move. Because as I mentioned, the governor was very clear that he wasn't going to restart the program unless there was legislative action. But there are people, including uh, the person who I'm about to play, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid of Springfield, that want the governor to reverse course and restart the program anyways. This is what uh, Leader Quaid had to say at the end of session. Well, um, I think it's safe to say that all of us were, have been frustrated since the former governor got rid of the program. Um, it's something that all of our communities across the whole state utilize. And we have, frankly, no mechanism for housing for people in poverty right now. And um, so I definitely hope that the governor goes outside the legislature and restarts this program. Um, you know, should he waiver? I think he should. We have people who need help. And this, you know, this program may not be perfect, um, but it's better than nothing, which is what we have right now. So that's uh, House uh, Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. This is a clip from State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick. He's a former colleague of yours who's now involved in this process because he's a member of the Missouri Housing Development Commission. This is what he had to say about the prospects of the program coming back on this year. I wanted, and I think everybody that I talked to that was for reform, wanted the legislature to give the commission the ability to do some things they can't do right now to make the credit more valuable on the secondary market when they're sold. And uh, and so that didn't happen, right? I mean, I think that we will continue, we'll, we'll continue to issue federal credits. Uh, I'm working with the governor's office now on a scoring system. I mean, they've, they've been working on that. We're trying to engage with them on that. And uh, uh, so we want to go ahead and make those parts of it uh, very transparent uh, if we can. Uh, but I, my expectation is the governor won't start the restart the state credits. I think, you know, I was in a, I've been in meetings with the governor on this issue, and his he is very uh, clear that he's always been a supporter of this program. But he also said, look, at the end of the year, this is an issue that's always still on the table, and I want to get something done. And so, you know, it was late in the session where we kind of finally came to a place where we could. Uh, you know, the industry was was kind of moving a little bit towards supporting something. And the governor really did lean in, at, you know, at the end of session to try to get something done. And there was, you know, there were a couple of things. It was pretty late, honestly. And I think that uh, given another shot that we have a lot higher likelihood of success because more people have learned. There's been a lot of more discussion. A lot more learning has taken place. So those are two varying perspectives. Um, I'm interested in what, A, you think the governor would do and what the governor should do as far as restarting the program. I know that's the governor's decision, and he's probably hearing from a lot of different people right now, but what's your what's your take on what the governor should do in the next few weeks and months on, on this issue? All I have to go on is what the governor has said in his own words, and that's that he wants to see meaningful reform. And a lot of the conversation this year was around what does meaningful reform look like, and how do we accomplish meaningful reform? And a lot of that conversation was very positive, and I think we did get very close to having a solution get across the finish line. And I think given the opportunity, I would agree with State uh, with Treasurer Fitzpatrick that we, we do have a much higher likelihood of success. Um, I, in Representative Quaid's comments, I do have to correct one small thing there. Uh, it's incorrect to say that there is no mechanism for low-income housing in the state without the state program. There's $180 million of federal 
funds that go towards low-income housing in Missouri. So it's not like these these developments aren't happening, that we are suddenly left in the lurch without any low-income housing. Certainly the state program supplements that and, and can help in providing additional housing units for low-income folks, and that's important to do. And it does reach across communi- communities across our entire state. So it is an important thing that we address that. Um, you know, in terms of whether the program should be turned back on or not, um, again, I would agree with Treasurer Fitzpatrick that, you know, we really need to have some additional uh, tools that the MHDC can utilize. But I also think that we need to put some of those in legislation and we need to have it in law requirements as to how the program is going to be improved. If we leave it just up to the MHDC, which are not all elected officials, you know, it's a board that's controlled by the governor, we could have a different administration that takes a different approach. And again, we could be left in a situation where the program is inefficient and not transparent the way it needs to be. So we need to fix this in the legislature. We need to tackle this as a as a hard issue. It's one of the toughest ones we've got out there. There's a lot of opinions about it. And again, for a decade, really the, the, the reforms that have been suggested have been largely overlooked and ignored. Well, the time is now to address those concerns. The time is now to fix those, make the program more efficient and effective. Well, my final question for you, do you think that there will be a special session on this? Because there was a Kansas City Star article uh, rumblings about that. Kind of what I've heard from people is there probably won't be a special session on this unless there's another issue that rises to the forefront that this can be paired with. Because I mentioned this on the, the show with Treasurer Fitzpatrick. They tried to do a special section on tax credits in 2011. And I think it described it as the most disastrous legislative anything that I've ever seen in my 13 years of politics reporting. The point being, like, this is a hard issue, and if you don't have your ducks in a row, special session's a waste of time. So it's a verbose wind-up to a very simple question, but do you think there should be a special session, and do you think there will be a special session on low-income housing tax credits? My personal feeling is that the right way to deal with this is through the regular legislative session so that we have an opportunity to vet a lot of these ideas that were presented, some of them for the first time, to the legislature in this past legislative session. I feel that is the right way to do this. Um, I don't know whether a special session would yield any success, and I am um, a little concerned that that, that, that it would not yield any fruit. Uh, and that's that. we don't want that to happen. We don't want to have another 2011 uh, situation where we go through all of that process and, and nothing really substantial comes out of it. The, the groundwork has been laid for a positive legislative session next year where we can really address these uh, and get some of them across the finish line. Well, Representative Greyer, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was probably the most focused topic show we've ever done just on economic development and economic incentives. So Bravo for, for, for breaking the ground on Politically Speaking. Thank you, Jason. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you bringing me on. Well, I appreciate you coming. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Well, Twitter, it's at Derek Ryer, so pretty simple, D-E-R-E-K-G-R-I-E-R. Uh, Facebook, I have a representative Derek Ryer Facebook account. And, of course, you can always email me at Derek.Greyer at house.mo.com. Oh, my gosh. What's my email address? It's Derek.Grier at house.mo.gov. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> How do I know this? I am creepy, am I? Well, I mean, I get I get house emails all the time. So this is not because uh, I'm cyber stalking sure. anybody. But for uh, uh, in any case, until next time, so long. <laughs>